today's a very, uh, today's an exciting day just in, in the church year. Uh, today is Pentecost, so happy birthday, church. We did it. Not City Beautiful, but the Capital C Church. We're about 1,987 years old today, so well done. So, of course, if you know, if you know the story from Acts chapter 2, um, this Pentecost is in commemoration of the day that Jesus said, after I ascend, I want you to wait, and he was talking to his disciples, wait for the advocate for the paraclete, for the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send to you, and that becomes kind of the birth of the church as, um, as Jesus' followers go out and, um, and speak uh, speak the good news in all of these different languages, um, and we see the the beginning of the church, and here we are, you know, 1,987 years later, uh, and we still get to celebrate that. We still get to celebrate the Spirit within us uh, and being the people of God, and even this series that we're in right now is called Colony, and what we've been really kind of focusing on is what does it mean to be the people of God in the 21st century? There's a lot of things that are going on in our world today, whether it's in our personal local world or it's on the global scale, that aren't necessarily things that Peter and Paul and James, all these guys, were dealing with in the first century. Um, so how do we still understand what it is for us to be set apart, not against the world, but for the world, and even with the world, as Cole was talking about last week? Um, and so we're going to be talking tonight um, about nonviolence. I'm really excited about this. This is something that I'm really passionate uh, about. Um, and, and I just want to say again, you know, we, we really are trying to key in in this series. It, you don't have to agree with me. Amen? I give you permission to not necessarily have to take everything I say as gospel. I don't even believe myself half the time. <laughs> but we have to reclaim this idea that faith is not about us intellectually affirming the same phrases as the person sitting next to us in order for us to be in community. But faith is about us choosing to participate. Faith is about us in the journey, in the pursuit of God, and everything becomes conversation. So the stuff that I'm sharing tonight, um, I want you to, to take it in as kind of a what if. What if this is the picture that God's creating for how we interact with the world because of who Christ Jesus is? So I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your sweetness and your tenderness, Lord. Um, just through worship and through honoring people that are, that are taking risk to say yes to you and, and going to these lengths to, to be um, the radiance of your love uh, all around the world, Father. I just thank you so much for that, Lord. I thank you that you've gifted us with an active community, a living community, a vibrant community, um, people who have um, experienced you and we've been transformed and we're in the process of being transformed. And it changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see what you've called us to. And so, Father, tonight, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So uh, when I was living in Nashville, I, I ran a community home uh, with one of my best friends, Matt, that eventually became a church plant in East Nashville. And Matt and I would, would go uh, to great lengths discussing um, all of these things that the Lord was putting on our heart. For both of us kind of being these punk rock kids that are like, you know, anti-war and everything, we talk a lot about the idea of Christian pacifism or Christian nonviolence. And we, I remember us sitting on our, my porch one time and talking about this, how inevitably whenever we talk about nonviolence or pacifism, we're all always presented with that same scenario. And you could probably write this scenario. You've probably heard this as well. Well, what do you do if someone breaks into your house and they've got a shotgun 
and your wife and your kids are in there. What are you going to do then, right? And I'm sure we've all kind of heard that scenario before. And as we're kind of talking through this, my friend Matt paused for a second. He said, you know what? And Matt had a wife. He had two beautiful little kids. They were three and a year old at the time. He said, you know what? I know what I would do is the right thing, but I'm not exactly sure that it's the Christian thing. And that's the thing that scares me. And I thought that was such an interesting way to answer that kind of what-if scenario. You know, a lot of times we're looking for formulas and having decisions made before we ever get into these scenarios that may and probably will never happen to any of us. But a lot of times I think the mechanisms by which we make those kind of decisions in advance actually prevent us from really engaging with things. One of, the, one of my favorite phrases that Jesus uses several times in the way that he teaches is this, go and figure out what this means. You know, people didn't necessarily come and sit and listen to Jesus and you completely understand everything he said. In fact, most people walked away confused. Most people walked away with a lot of question marks. But it was the way that Jesus taught. He, he empowered people. He laid down foundation and he planted seeds and he said, now go and figure out what this means. And I think there's so much more for us, again, in that place of faith, that's not about so much coming to conclusions as about us really wrestling with things and examining what, what are we actually called to as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as little Christs. And so tonight, as we're talking in this larger conversation I want us to have about Christian ethics, and then I want us to focus specifically on this idea of nonviolence. My sermon today is going to be called More Than Conquerors. Subtitle is, Pastor Ryan's coming for your guns, so watch out. But this is where I want us to start in talking about, like, kind of Christian ethics and how we make decisions, um, and then we'll go into nonviolence specifically. So this is my uh, beginning uh, kind of statement. God's story moves towards abundant life and increased compassion. God's story moves towards abundant life and increased compassion. So even when we begin in the story in Genesis and we have this creation narrative and we see that God creates Adam and Eve and he places them in this garden, there are these two trees that are in the center of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people will say sometimes, well, how cruel is it of God to even put that temptation there for them? But you see, in order for there to be love, there has to be the choice to not love. See, everything else in creation does what it does I don't want to say mechanically because that sounds negative, but they, the creation does what it does because of the way that it's designed. But we're unique in the facet that we have free will. And God wanted to create a special creature, a companion for himself, that had that free will to choose into love. And so he creates this tree of life and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says you can eat of everything, and the implication there is especially to eat of the tree of life. This is your source and your sustenance, but you not, must not eat of the tree of good and evil. Now, of course, Adam and Eve, like many of us, especially when we're five years old, as soon as someone tells us not to do something, what do we do? We do it, exactly. And so what happens? Eve is seduced by the serpent. She takes the fruit, she eats of it, she gives it to her husband, Adam, and it grieves God, uh, but he has to banish them from the garden. And it's so fascinating to me, these two concepts, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because I think it shapes so much of how we approach as Christians um, our ethics and understanding of how we maneuver through life. Because what I believe the, the symbolism there in those two trees is that we were always supposed to pursue life. We were never supposed to, we were never designed 
to choose the knowledge of good and evil as an end unto itself, okay? <laughs> See, I think what happens a lot of times when we pursue this, the idea of good and evil, we establish good and evil, right and wrong, based on our personal narratives, based on what we think is true. And, and the, the irony is that you probably don't have the same understandings of good and evil as even the person next to you. And so when it comes to our ethics, the way that we make decisions, our morality, a lot of times it becomes very relativistic because my morals and ethics might be different than the person next to me. And it leads us into this place where ultimately we're looking to establish rules in our lives to help control our little worlds. But I think that we were always designed to pursue life in God. Because when we're pursuing life, now we're talking about intimacy. We're talking less about our personal stories and we're talking more about God's story. And this is what I see throughout the, 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 the entire story of God laid out in the Bible, is that God is continually inviting first Israel and then all of us to recognize, do you want to pursue life in me or do you want to continue to try to make decisions of what you think is good and evil, right and wrong, based on the worldview that you've come to recognize? But it's pursuing life is inherently about relationship. It's inherently about choosing in to God's story. And so I think faith, choosing to participate in God's story, brings us above and beyond questions of just ethics or morality or right and wrong. And the beauty is that when we pursue life in God, right and wrong take care of themselves. Good and evil are byproducts of pursuing intimacy with Father God. And so I think when we're talking about peace, when we're talking about nonviolence or pacifism, we have to begin that conversation within our own hearts. When we begin that conversation, we have to examine the place of intimacy that we have with God in choosing to live into his story. And when we choose peace and nonviolence and pacifism within our own hearts, it begins to radiate out onto the global platform. Now, what do we see after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and are no longer permitted to eat from the tree of life? We see this ripple effect through the first several chapters of Genesis all the way up until we meet Abraham in Genesis 12. And we see so quickly, even in the first generation past Adam and Eve, the story of Cain and Abel and what happens because of jealousy, because of a lack of intimacy. Cain murders his brother Abel. And we begin to see the cycle of violence building itself into the human narrative. And that's where we enter into this idea of the myth of redemptive violence. Because I think very often violence is actually born out of places of misplaced injustice. When we feel like things are not going right or wrong according to our personal stories or how we've chosen to arrange the world, our response out of that can often be something of violence. And there's this range from the deeply personal. Consider what is gossip. Gossip is, is verbal violence against someone else where you're seeking to have power over them by diminishing them with your words. But it also transcends out to the place of nuclear war. You know, we fall into this illusion that if, 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 if I come at you with a knife because you came at with me at a stone, you're going to come back at me with a gun, and then I'm going to come back at you with a machine gun, and then you're going to come back to me with a tank, and then I'm going to come back to you with a nuclear warhead. Even consider, does anybody remember, what's the nickname of World War I? The war to end all wars, and what happened 15 years later? World War II. You see, we get, in, we get stuck in these conversations of, oh, maybe if we had a bigger military, maybe if I carried a bigger stick, maybe that's the way that we can actually end 
violence. But I think using violence to try to end violence doesn't work. You see, when we try to fix it ourselves, justice just ends up looking like revenge. I think this is a place that I certainly recognize in myself, but I also want to invite you to recognize as well. When I'm speaking about Christian pacifism, I'm speaking about it not because it's something that I live out, but because it's something that I desperately need within myself. Because so much of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life is pointing out the places in myself where I am a violent man. And maybe I don't participate in nuclear war, but I've certainly participated in my fair share of gossip or slander or violence against another human being in order to maintain a sense of control or in order to correct injustices that I feel. And I think oftentimes, Christians, we actually perpetuate these cycles of violence, whether it's on that personal or global layer. You know, when God's story is co-opted by American culture, and we call this two kingdoms theology, when we see there's the kingdom of God, and that's a nice ideal, but then there's the, the kingdom of the world that we actually live in, and we just have to play by the rules, we end up splitting ourselves, and we sound more like the imperialists that Jesus was so often preaching against than we do actually as his followers. And I think oftentimes what, what happens when we're trying to create, uh, problem, or create solutions to the problems that we face in our personal lives or the global, we often use, reduce violence to being what we call the last resort. But it really just means it's the second option when the way of Jesus is inconvenient or when the way of faith doesn't really suit us. You know, in our church, we're really passionate about the, the practicality of the gospel, and we, and we really want to make it where the, these things are tangible, and it's something that, that we can live out in our day-to-day -day life. But sometimes when we get into these conversations of pra practicality, we're really talking about uh, convenience. And we're trying, to, we're trying to wrap our heads around something where Jesus is saying, go and figure out what this means. And it becomes that mystery that we're to step into. And I think sometimes the gospel isn't always practical. I think quite often the gospel isn't convenient. And that's why it's revolutionary. That's why it's radical, because it's this radical new vision of which story we're actually living and what it really means to be human in the way that God is inviting us to recognize. And so my challenge to all of us is that we let the words and life of Jesus shake up our assumptions about what the right response is to violence in the world. And I think that's really the challenge of faith but we have to let go of it being something that we can, we can encapsulate and control and hold on to tightly, but allow it its bigness and the marvelous story that it is. And so we look at the biblical narrative and that cycle of violence, and everything spirals out of control so very quickly. And we see throughout the story of Israel so much in the Psalms, as I had talked about uh, weeks ago, that there's this cry of injustice. God, what are you going to do about this? When are you going to come and put things right? How are you going to give us this path out of these cycles of violence and the systems of evil and bring us back into relationship and intimacy with you? And I think that really sets the stage so beautifully to look not only at the life, but the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so my second point is this. The cross, not the sword, is God's solution to overcoming the evil systems of the world. The cross, not the sword, was God's solution. 
When we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we see this over and over again, that Jesus pardoned sinners on the personal level, but he was very critical of these systems that human beings had established, systems of sin, systems of oppression, systems ultimately of violence, that in order to get ahead, somebody else has to be diminished and made small and taken advantage of. And so Jesus pardoned sinners on an individual level, but he was very critical of the systems and the power establishments of his day that held people down in the first place or perpetuated violence on that personal level or the global level. Um, The Brazilian Archbishop Helder Camara said this one time, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they're poor, they call me a communist. You see, sometimes we revert that. We want to really... condemn the individual sinner, but we give a free pass to the systems of the world that perhaps made them a sinner in the first place. And I think for us to step into that prophetic vocation like Jesus, to be the pardon of God for individuals, to see sins forgiven, to see people come into intimacy with God, but also to prophetically stand up and speak against these systems of power that are in place that that lead to oppression and violence, I think is so much of what our call is. And so I want to look at two uh, passages that Paul talks about the cross and see how we can extract out of that a message of nonviolence. The first is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You see, we think that violence solves violence, and if we were to write the story of how God was going to come in and correct it, we'd maybe create the story that the Jews or the, the Gentiles were struggling with. This is when it says the Jews demanded signs, and remember, Paul is very passionate about signs. He's not diminishing signs and wonders by any means. But what he's saying is when the Jews demand signs, they're saying, we want God to show up and to beat up all of the bad guys and to reestablish the nation of Israel and make us awesome again so that we're more privileged than everybody else around us. Because again, remember, Israel had forgot that they were called to be the, whole, the royal priesthood, the mediators between God and mankind. And so Jews wanted the signs from God because it would give them power, and it would give them privilege, and ultimately it would oppress other people. And when he says the Greeks look, were looking for wisdom, the Greeks valued wisdom. For them, knowledge was power. And if we have this secret knowledge of the universe and how it works, we can use that to place ourselves on top of the heap. That we can create our empire out of knowledge and control people that way. And so the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. And again, Paul loves signs. Paul loves wisdom. But he says, but we preach Christ crucified. And it's not Christ resurrected, although Paul believes in the resurrection. No, we preach Christ crucified. Because you see, as human beings, if we were to write the story of how God was going to save the world, we probably would have written another story of violence. That God just needs bigger guns than us, and then he can set us straight. But no, God wrote a drastically different story. He wrote a foolish story. He he wrote a weak story. That it's through the weakness of God that the world is saved from sin and from violence. 
Let's continue on looking at Colossians chapter 2. There's another place where Paul talks about the cross. He says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now this is the second, listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So not only is this, the, the, the cross as the method by which God chose to save the world seem foolish and weak, but it also offers us that personal atonement for our sin, and it also offers us that global perspective of victory, not because we're stronger, but because Christ passed through the violence and the sin of the world. What was it that nailed Christ to the cross? It was not an angry God. It wasn't violent, drunk dad who was coming to beat us up, and then all of a sudden our big brother stood in in for us and took the beating for us. No, it was the perfect picture of what God is actually like. That God aligned himself with us. He gathered up into himself all of the sin and the brokenness. He allowed the violence of mankind to crucify him so that he might die for us but to provide the path through that, that we might step into new life. Jesus on the cross is the best picture of what God is actually like. And if you want to get even more specific, Jesus on the cross saying, Father God, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, is the best image of God the world has ever known. Talk about nonviolence. Talk about pacifist resistance. It's the way that God has chosen to save the world. And as Christians, as little Christs, we bear that same image in us. And so Jesus' life opened us up to envision the world the, the way it should be when God is actually king. Consider the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you the truth, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When later on he says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And every healing, and every word that Jesus spoke, he's opening us up to this new vision of what it looks like when God is king and he rescues the world. But Jesus' death opened up that path for us to actually live with God as our king, to bring us back into intimacy with him, to transform us and to pattern us in his likeness so that we too might go out into the world as little Christs and offer that message of peace and goodness. My fourth point, Christian imagination enables us to practice the peaceable kingdom in the here and now as a way to break the cycles of violence. In Jesus' life, but also in his death, he gave us the pattern for how we should live in the colony of God. There's this line in 1 Peter chapter 2 that has haunted me for a couple years now. I'm sure I've read it my whole life, but it it, it, just something struck me about it a couple years ago, and it, 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 it shows so beautifully describes this pattern that we have from Christ Jesus of how we are to live. And it says this in First Peter. Peter writes this. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So Christ suffered for you. Christ advocated for you with his whole body, leaving an, you an example that you should follow in his steps, 
He goes on, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So what is the pattern that we are after Jesus? What is the invitation that Jesus is inviting us to follow because of his suffering? It says this, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. How often are our violent reactions to injustice in the world, how often do they betray the possibility that we don't really trust God or his story? I think that's why so often we take these very large, beautifully haunting statements of Jesus and we add these little asterisks into our Bible that say, love your enemies until it's inconvenient or until they're half a world away. Love your enemies until they really start messing with your stuff. Love your enemies until it actually costs you something. You know, we love to put those little asterisks and those little paraphrases in the Bible. Yep. But what if our response in violence betrays the fact that we don't really trust God to judge us justly? So it's not just about nonviolent resistance. It's also about this defenseless and non-resistant love that we go out into the world and we suffer for the world. But we don't retaliate with violence, but we actually offer that defenseless love that trusts God to justify, and we become the peace of God. And Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 8. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, but it's just once you pick up this strand, you just see how important this is to God's story. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's talking about what life in the Spirit really looks like, and he says this in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, all of these violent systems in the world, as it is written, and he quotes the psalmist, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now Paul is not quoting from the Psalms because he's saying this isn't actually applied to you. He's saying, no, 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 this is the pattern to which you are called to live if you consider yourself a follower of Christ Jesus. And he goes on, he says this, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. I mentioned several weeks ago, sometimes we read that and we go, yes, we're super conquerors, you know? God's given us the bigger weapon to go out and to, to, to wrestle the world into control and to establish the kingdom through force and to really make it happen. That's what we are. We're super ultra conquerors. Like one of those ninja shows from the 90s. You remember? Like they just got more and more ridiculous. No. We are more than conquerors. Because what do conquerors do? They go out by force and they establish their empires with violence. But we are called to be more than that. Because we go out with a defenseless, non-resistant love of Christ. And we suffer things from the world and our response back to it is pardon and love and peace. Paul goes on, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I heard it said recently that peace is the path. It's not the destination. When we say, how do I get 
to peace. No, no, no. Peace is the journey itself. Peace is the way that we choose to walk it out. And justice is found not in vengeance, but in forgiveness. You know, it was said of St. Francis of Assisi that he used to walk the world as the pardon of God. And that's what we're all called to do, to walk the world as the pardon of God. Because we imitate our Christ, the slaughtered lamb, who bore the sin of the world and in turn forgave it. And as sheep being led to the slaughter, we too live out that pattern because we are more than conquerors. Because we know that none of these things can separate us from the love of God. Because we know that there is no amount of violence that the world can do to us, that another man can do to us, that would separate us from the love of God and the life that we have in Christ. Dear Elder Paul is going to be talking more about the forgiving community in two weeks on the 29th, I encourage you to come and hear him speak about that. I'm really excited. He had some great things to say yesterday. And this is my final point. Much of a Christian's role is to name and embody goodness. Much of a Christian's role is to name and embody goodness. See, I got real clever here, and I capitalized the N in there, so you're like, oh, the name, Hashem. Yes, the name. But much of a Christian's role is to go out into the world as the faithful presence, as the pardon of God, the peaceable kingdom, and to name and embody goodness. Later on in Romans, Paul begins to talk about us being living sacrifices. And he kind of finishes out Romans 12 by saying this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, unless they really deserve it. Oh, wait, no, sorry, that's not in there. Okay, let's continue on. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Let me say it this way. Do not take revenge and call it justice. Okay? Do not take revenge and say that you're, you're warranted in your decisions because they, they deserved it. Or that was the only way for you to achieve peace. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We'll have a whole other conversation about God's, God's wrath later on. Don't worry about that one, okay? Actually, do worry about it, and then we'll, you know, you're in a better position to listen then. On the contrary, <laughs> on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's come back to that murder scenario. This, this what if. You've got your, your wife or your husband in the house and you've got your kids and someone bursts in with a shotgun. What are you going to do? You know, when we, when we live eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we want rules and regulations, we want patterns, we want formula, we want to know what's going to happen before we ever get there. But how many times has that ever actually worked out in life? Where we've got it all figured out, we know exactly every decision that we're going to make from here until the end. You know, we want the formula to know what to do in those kind of scenarios, but we have to be guided by faith in the Holy Spirit. 
We have to be guided as Christians to make decisions because we're pursuing life in God and to allow his story to shape the way that we make those decisions. And we also need to question why that man is violent in the first place. We need to question maybe why is that man breaking into my house? Is it because he's poor? Is it because he's being ostracized for his race, for his socioeconomic status, because he's an immigrant? Whatever it might be, we also need to start questioning those things if we're going to talk in hypotheticals. And so I don't know. I don't have the answer for what we're supposed to do in those kind of situations. I don't have the answer for what we're supposed to do about nuclear war. I don't have the answer for how we solve terrorism. But I do know that it requires divine imagination for us to step outside of the cycles of violence and begin to respond out of the peace of Christ. You know, a couple years ago, there were, there were 21 young Coptic Christian men in Ethiopia who were beheaded by ISIS. And they were talking to one of the mothers of, of two of these young men and asking her about what she would do if she was able, ever able to confront these, these terrorists that had beheaded her sons. And she said, I would invite them into my house and I would make them a cup of tea and I would ask God to open their eyes because he was the reason my sons entered the kingdom of heaven. That is kingdom. That is real. That's the kind of response when we let go of trying to figure out formulas and we live into God's story and we let it be revolutionary and radical. That's what it looks like for us to embody the nonviolent and the non-resistant love of Christ Jesus. So I want you to stand. This week, I want to challenge each of you to spend some time in prayer asking the Lord first and foremost to reveal to you the violence within your own heart. Secondly, I want you to ask him for the courage to step out of those cycles of violence. And thirdly, I want you to invite him to give you the divine imagination to approach the world as it is with peace. As we continue on in worship, we're going to come to the Lord's table together as his children, as the brothers and sisters of Christ, as those who are being transformed and being patterned after him. And what beautiful symbol we have in the body and blood of Christ that we come and we participate in that. We take the weakness of God into us and it transforms us and it pushes the violence out of us and it enters in the spirit and it fills those places. Friends, we are the colony of God it's called to live out God's story well. To lead ourselves and to lead this world towards abundant life and increased compassion. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that not only is it the way in which our sins have been forgiven, not only is it the way to new life and relationship in you, but it's also the answer to the broken and evil systems of the world that perpetuate this cycle of violence. Lord, we're sorry that we have ever believed that our violent actions are going to somehow bring about peace. Lord, teach us that beautiful, counterintuitive message of disarming love, of defenseless love, of non-resistant love, that we might go out into this world and be the pardon of God 
to, a, to establish and administer your kingdom through our willingness to say yes to your story. So Father, as we come forward to participate in your table, we pray that you would sanctify this bread and this juice, that they would become to us your body and your blood, shed for us, gathering up all of the sin of the world into yourself and putting it to death. Lord, I pray that each of us are transformed as we come to your table. We pray all of these things in the strong and the beautiful name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's two tables.